is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. In this week's podcast, we go behind the scenes at the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust and speak to Jaguar about new merchandise. Plus, all of your technical questions answered. JECpodcast.com Hi, yeah, Wayne Scott here, scarcely believing that it's already episode nine of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. You're very welcome along and hope you're enjoying the series as we continue to bring you what we hope is a brief escape into the world of Jaguar and away from the world out there, which is continuing to be a little bit crazy at the moment and i really hope as well that the podcast is making everyone feel a little bit more connected during these times and we'd love to hear from you by the way on this podcast so you can get in touch with your messages via jcpodcast.com and we'll get you on the podcast just like gt joey did this week this is gt joey holding up the fort for the jaguar in the northeast of the united states of america whoever came up with this idea with the podcast, great, great idea. I'm turning everybody on in the States to it. It's just wonderful in these times. Keep it forever. Keep it forever. Thank you, guys. Lifetime member, GT Joey, Joe Jelly. wrapping up my E-Type Jag now. Thank you. Great to hear from you, GT Joey. Send us a picture of your E-Type, by the way. I'll tell you how in just a second. Also, hello to Jeff Hudson, who sent us a message. And he says, many years ago, I got to sit in the driver's seat of my friend's V12 E-Type. I was promised to drive around Liverpool city centre the next day. Sadly, the car was stolen. But since that time, Jaguar E-Types have always been my favourite car, and I've driven Jaguars and a two-door Daimler ever since. Great to hear from you, Jeff, and don't forget, get in touch. We love to hear from you. Put your messages out and also hear your stories about your Jaguars. Perhaps there's an amazing trip that you've taken yourself on in your Jaguar that you'd like to share with all of the listeners here at jcpodcast.com. Get in touch, jcpodcast.com. Just use the contact button and leave us a voice message or use the contact form that you'll find on there as well. So I mentioned uploading pictures Just a quick update for you now on our virtual Jaguar Festival, which you can also access via jcpodcast.com. And whilst entries to our virtual concourse have now closed, the virtual show field remains open for you to display your Jaguar as part of our virtual Jaguar Festival until the end of July. Those keen to cast their vote, by the way, in our virtual concourse d'elegance, won't have to wait too much longer for you to make your decisions because voting will open on June the 26th, just a couple of weeks' time, and run for one calendar month until July the 26th, with the winner being announced on Friday Spotlight, that's our e-newsletter, on the 31st of July 2020. All it takes is for you to upload your images using a simple form, so come along, get involved. It's free, it's a bit of fun, and it's a way of sharing our Jaguars with each other when we can't gather at real car shows. Have a look at it, jcpodcast.com. Just click the Virtual Festival button in the menu there, and you'll see the show field. You'll see the entries to Concours d'Elegance after the 26th of June. And you can also relive past summer Jaguar festivals as well by watching our library of videos that we've posted up there for you as well. News from Jaguar Land Rover next on the JC podcast. And uh, I'd like to welcome along Rakesh Kanabar to the podcast. Hi, Rakesh. 
Hi, Wayne. How are you? Very well, thanks. And understand you, like so many people out there in the world at JLR, are still working from home at the minute. How's it gone for you? Um, to be honest, it's gone okay. Um, we're lucky in that we can work from home um, within the commercial function. So we've got laptops, we've got monitors, and you know we're trying to keep the business going as best as we can. Tell us a little bit about your role under, well, more normal circumstances at JLR and how you fit into the big sort of ecosystem over there. Well, I've worked at Jaguar for just over 21 years and my current position is global sales manager within the branded goods and licensing team for Jaguar. So essentially we look after uh, most items that are non-vehicle related. So um, some of the clothing range that we do, things that we might produce under license um, and various items that we sell from uh, watches to leather holders to model cards all of that kind of stuff that we sell through our website and through our retail network my ears pricked up when you said model cars there because there are some absolute works of art on your website at the moment i was having a sneaky peek earlier on <laughs> yeah yes there are I mean, there's some um one eight scale amalgam models actually which are amazing they are so the, the attention to detail is is absolutely amazing We've actually got an XK120 1.8 scale, uh, which is produced by Amalgam, and that's a very detailed collector's replica. Um, that has a saving of over £2,680 at the minute, so it's a very special item um, that that's available currently. And of course, being part of the Jaguar brand is a fantastic brand that people want to have in their lives. It, it, they want to have a part of it, and as we know here at the Jaguar Enthusiast Club with our own club shop. Yeah, that's right, and I think they appeal to... Um, owners and potential uh, customers that are aspirational they one day want to have a Jaguar or they just have some affiliation to the brand and you know we even do some um, kids items like kids ride-ons so you know the, the youngsters can really get into it or if they want to um, you know have a car like their dad or their granddad or whatever it might be that, that's in the family they can feel part of that Jaguar experience as well. I remember the Jaguar brand was quite strong when I was growing up. I remember um, sort of late 90s, early 2000s, everyone had a Jaguar sports holder and everyone at school had one of the tin pencil cases of the XJ220 Le Mans car, the GT car. <laughs> it's stuff like that that sticks in your mind, you know? It, it, it does, yeah. I remember those green holders very well, yes. Things are easing in the UK at the moment. Lockdown is easing and very gently but very sensitively we're all starting to just get kind of back to work and you've started to get things moving again uh, within your end of uh, Jaguar so tell us about some of the promotions you've got coming up for June. Yeah so uh, the bulk of our items are sold via our retail network and as you say things are um, getting moving and the retailers have opened from the 1st of June but we're quite fortunate in the UK that we have a website as well uh, the address is shop.jaguar.com and during this time period where you know lots of people have been at home we've actually found that the website has been a really good go-to place for our customers to you know to continue to enjoy items from our range and um, during the month of June we've got a promotion going on which will run until the 22nd where we have 30% off selected items plus then we've got an additional 10% off site-wide so some really good savings during the month and that is accessed through a, a gift code which is gift 2020. It must have been an amazing 
last two decades working for Jaguar. You must really love the brand as much as we do. Yes, definitely. Um, you know, I've seen, seen the business expand rapidly and, you know, we've got a, a very uh, envious product range at the minute, so it's great. Thanks for joining us and uh, we'll be checking out those gifts as soon as we can. Thanks, Wayne. All the best. Memories of motorsport. Richard remembers on the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Time now for another motorsport memory then from Richard West. This week, Richard takes us back to 1990 and a memorable trip with Tom Walkinshaw on a Learjet. This is a brilliant story. For 1990, uh, the team was incredibly well prepared. But interestingly, at that time, Tom, uh, because he'd already got his eyes on the XJR15 programme and the One Make Race series, we had to go to Japan en route to America, which probably sounds a bit of a convoluted route if you look at it on a map. But Tom gave me a call late one evening and said, I need you in Kidlington in about an hour, an hour and a half. And I lived reasonably close by. And I got to Kidlington on this very dark um, sort of early February night. And um, as my wife unloaded me onto the tarmac, sitting in front of us was a Lear 60 executive jet. And if you look up a Lear 60, it's like a little tiny cigar tube with two enormous engines. And I said to Tom, where are we going? And he said, Japan. And I said, in a Learjet? He said, no, from there, we're going round to America for the Daytona 24-hour race as well. So as you do, you don't argue with the boss. We got on the Lear 60. I think from memory, we flew up to Scotland where we stopped and refueled. We then landed in Novosibirsk inside the Arctic Circle where we had to hot refuel because the temperature was so low they couldn't turn the engines off. And I remember sitting in the cigar tube locked in the back because we weren't allowed to go past the door to the flight deck thinking, if this goes wrong, we're toast, literally. We flew into uh, Japan, and Tom had set up a meeting with Bridgestone, and he had a great rapport with Bridgestone. They rated him very, very highly. And I think in the back of Tom's mind, this was the start of his relationship to try and build his Formula One team. Um, We did a deal with uh, Bridgestone for tyres for the XJR15 Challenge, and Tom got food poisoning, and... (laughs) He was incredibly unwell for two days, so I clicked my heels wandering around Japan doing the tourist bit. And as we took off, the first thing Tom did, still a bit dicky, was had a big tray of Japanese prawns and smoked salmon. I always remember thinking, should you really be eating those on a small aeroplane if you've had food poisoning? But long story short, we flew to the west coast of America, we did business there, and then we flew down to Daytona. And there was this incredible one-two that the team achieved with uh, you know the team really really being I've got this picture to this very day of the two cars high up on the banking in the early morning sunlight and again it just reinforced the Jaguar message and Daytona incredibly difficult race to win because you know Le Mans I've talked about it at some of the club nights I've done when four o'clock five o'clock in the morning it starts to get light it gets warm well in Florida when the sun comes up it gets red hot and you know Martin was talking recently about cockpit temperatures they got as high as high 40s degrees C in the cockpits of the group C cars so when you're up on the banking and the sun's streaming through the windscreen at over 220 miles an hour it's a hell of a challenge and uh, anyway you know history is history we won the Daytona 24 hour race some amazing calls on pit stops Martin doing triple stints you know and having to be escorted out of the car where he described it as looking like down a grey tube he said he was so dehydrated and so lightheaded it was almost looking like down a grey plastic tube until his body temperature came down we won the race we had a very short time to celebrate and then Tom said to me have you got a suitcase and I said well of course he said leave it behind he said we'll get it sent over 
I said, where are we going? He said, Washington. So we, a bit like Martin's story of, you know, jumping out on the private jet to go, and Concord, to go to Talladega to test back in 88. I thought we were going to Washington on business and we jumped in the helicopter and uh, we flew up to Washington and the helicopter landed next to Concord and as we got out, there was a guy standing there checking passports and tickets and he said, hello, Mr. West, Mr. Walkinshaw, you know, make your way aboard, please. And I said, Tom, what the hell are we doing? He said, that's the first and the last time I ever try and go around the world in a Learjet. He said, I'm selling it as soon as it get back, gets back to Kidlington. So he said, get on board, enjoy a glass of champagne, and I'll see you in the office in the morning. And uh, we, we flew back to the UK on Concord, which was an amazing experience, which I shall cherish for many years, probably the rest of my life. And the IMSA team went on to great things. And of course, Tony and his team then came over and helped engineer that number three car that famously won but I'm on 24-hour race. So there's a little bit of background to TWR, Valparaiso, and all the guys who make that possible. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Sharing the passion, sharing the knowledge. All your questions answered with the Jaguar model experts. Time once again to answer all of your technical questions here on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Very easy to get in touch if you want your questions answered. Every week we do this and it could be your question answered on next week's podcast. All you have to do is go to jcpodcast.com, use the contact button there and you can use the form to write out a technical question, but preferably you can use the voice messaging system there to leave us a voicemail so that we can put you on the podcast. We start this week with Keith Morrison and a problem with an X300 and Tom Robinson from Swallows Independent Jaguar is answering our questions again today with some help from David Marks of course as ever and Keith says he has a hesitation issue on his X300. It happens out of the blue when he's cruising at about 50-60 miles per hour and uh, when I'm accelerating mainly he says uh, the engine is up to temperature and when it happens there's a slight vibration and a kind of droning noise. If I take my foot off the accelerator, then put it back down, it clears itself sometimes. I can accelerate and drive through it. Other times, I can't. Uh, He thought it might be the prop shaft with the vibration noise, but it looks and feels fine. He's checked every coil and each spark plug, but all's good there. He hasn't yet replaced the spark plugs, but that's the next thing on the list then maybe do a complete engine service including air fuel and oil filter uh should there be anything else that keith should look for the cars are 97 x300 with less than 70k on the clock right okay so yeah there definitely is some other pointers we can give you so it is pretty difficult to diagnose over the phone but i can certainly give you some steps now i've actually spoken with david about this who has given some great tips so hopefully this helps now The first thing we would normally do here is to give the vehicle a scan to see if there's any fault codes present. It is rare that there will be, but always worth ruling out. Now, I'm sure that's maybe not something you can do at home, but we'll give you a couple of other pointers around that. Now, um, there is a a couple of common faults. The first thing we would do is to check those spark plugs. I know you mentioned you already have, um, but the spark plugs on the X300NA must be the champion RCY9CC and set to zero... 0.035 0.035 gap. Now that is really important as any other plugs can cause running issues. 
Um, now, I would also recommend to either get these directly from a dealer or a good known Jaguar specialist to be sure on the quality of those plugs. So that really would be the, the first step. Avoid now, the cheapy ones on eBay then, basically, is what you're saying there. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, they can cause a whole host of issues and it might be the root cause of exactly what you're getting, um, especially with the hesitation that you mentioned. Now, David has also pointed out um, that there's some wiring connectors that are really prone to corrosion on the X300 and can cause similar issues to what you've explained. Now, the main plugs that um, to check is one for the ECU, as the water can run down the main engine harness into the ECU. Now, the ECU is located behind the driver's A-post kick panel, and it's where your right foot would be, if that makes sense, on a right-hand drive car. So you will need to remove the ECU and disconnect to check the ECU terminals for corrosion. So that is his first recommendation. And also there is another connector, or actually a couple of connectors in the engine bay, um, more or less in line with the screen washer bottle. On the chassis leg, there are two more connectors. One's black and one's slate. Check these as well for corrosion, as these are both also very common. So he then also recommend that it'd be worthwhile checking all of the earth points around the engine bay, clean these up and refit. Now, you can then start to move to sort of more, some of the more obscure um, points if these are all okay. So, for example, check if there's water in the petrol. A good indi indicator is whether there is any um, w water around the filler neck drain because these often can become blocked. So that will obviously then leak water into the tank itself. Um, now, if you do get to this stage, I think you are going to sort of go down the route of needing a scanner to go any further from this, and you can then check all the outputs and inputs to the ECU. For example, you can see exactly what the coolant and air temperature sensors and airflow meters are reading. Okay? Excellent. So, uh, yeah, what sounds like a simple finding a noise and slight hesitation. <laughs> it could be quite a complex set of diagnosis there. So, uh, hope we've helped yeah, you absolutely. along with that one there, Keith, and... Uh, Hopefully that has fixed something or at least given you a lead on where you can go to uh, find out the answer. Uh, Nick Dixon, another X300 question here. And he says, it's a two-part question. I've got a 1996 X300 XJR and I've heard that a pulley conversion on the supercharger is beneficial. Can you advise as to whether this is worthwhile or not? So that's, that's a great question. And, and the answer is to that is yes, they can be very effective. And equally, they are a very simple forms of upgrade to carry out. Now, as you, as you know, I raced an XJR6, and in my first season, um, that was actually the only engine performance upgrade we carried out with great effect. So it's, it is definitely really effect, effective. Now, we normally only fit the lower pulley, as you can increase the drive ratio easier without having to modify the upper supercharger pulley. But I can definitely highly recommend this modification. So basically, it uh, makes the supercharger pulley spin faster at the same RPM that it would have done before. Yeah, that's exactly it. The, the kind of, I always find the easiest way to explain is, is kind of like your bicycle gearing. If you're increasing the, the lower crank pulley, you're, you're increasing the drive ratio at lower RPMs. Gives you a bit more suck and blow and bang and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> Right, XJ40 now. Mike Brady says, I've got a rumble and a whine from the rear of my XJ40. Is this likely to be a worn diff or can worn suspension bushes cause the noise? Are there likely to be any other causes? And is it a big job that I might be facing? Probably need to experience a noise and run the car up on the ramp and listen to the whole drivetrain using a stethoscope. So that's kind of the first step. But um, just to go through some of the other points, um, the problem could 
as you've kind of said, simply be some of the bushes on the car. Now, the A-frame bushes on these um, can sort of allow the, the rear axle to effectively become solid mounted to the chassis if they're excessively worn. So this can transmit a lot of the sounds that are normally insulated by the mounts sort of through the car. Now, also another point, as we said earlier, the diffs are common on these and same with the wheel bearing. Um, so I think it's more likely to be one of these. Um, that you would need to look into. Wheel bearings aren't difficult or costly to change, but the diff, as we said earlier, does require dismantling and a diff rebuilding or replacing, unfortunately. Well, thanks, Tom, for once again answering all of our technical questions here on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget, if you need help with your Jaguar, all you have to do is get in touch. We'll sort it for you. Just go to jecpodcast.com, fill out the form, or leave us a voicemail. And next week on the podcast, very exciting news, we have an additional member of the expert panel. We'll be chatting with him about his many years working on Jaguars in the next episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Join the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club now at jec.org.uk. Well, established for the nation in 1983, the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust is a registered educational charity, and as well as maintaining Jaguar's priceless collection of historic vehicles, the Trust is responsible for preserving Jaguar's extensive archive of business documents, artefacts and product records, and everything else that builds up the history of the great mark of Jaguar. Its aim is to preserve the rich heritage of Jaguar Cars Limited and all its predecessor marks, including Swallow, SS, Daimler and Lanchester. And the man who's in charge of all of that exciting stuff is Tony Merigold and he joins us now on the JC Podcast. Hi Tony. Hi there Wayne, how are you? Very good, thanks. Uh, I understand during lockdown and the pandemic that the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust has been closed. In terms of the uh, what museum activities then, yes it is closed. Um, all of the staff uh, and there's, there's not that many of us, there's only seven of us, but all of the staff are still working. We're working from home and some of us are going into the office one or a couple of days a week to do other stuff. Uh, but, but yes, the workshop's closed, prepping or use of cars on events, yeah, that's all closed. We're hoping that the museum should be opening in early July because that's when the government has said public buildings are allowed to open. So we should start getting back to normality, I don't know, four or five weeks or so from now. Tell us about yourself then, Tony, and how you came to have this amazing job, about your personal love of cars and how you ended up at uh, Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust. Well, I've always loved cars ever, ever since I was a small boy. In fact, one of the uh, photographs I've got from me as a kid, um, it, I've actually got a toy XK120. Uh, Sadly, I can't tell you what colour it was because the photo's in black and white, so I'll have to guess. Uh, knowing me, it was probably red. Um, a few years later, I graduated to uh, building my own uh, during my uh, Airfix kit phase. Um, so I also had a red, red E-type then. Um, then eventually, when I got a bit more money, I, I went up into uh, real, real cars, but there's quite a long gap between Airfix and where I am now. Well, they're all big toys in the end, really, <laughs> aren't they, at the end of the day? <laughs> yes, it's the old adage, the difference between men and boys is the price of their toys. Let's talk about how the trust began, because I think probably some people would be quite surprised that it has been around for as long as it has. So tell us a story then of how the trust was formed, how it all began, and put it into context of how 
troubled Jaguar was at the time when it arrived in 1983. It had come out of some real times of change, hadn't it, really? Yeah, that's right. Most people will probably remember the uh, Leyland years. Jaguar ceased to be an independent company. Well, it firstly merged with uh, BMC to form British Motor Holdings, and then Leyland came along and it became part of the whole Leyland group. And and sadly, as we all now know, it, it became... Leyland Car Plant Large, or whatever they called it, and so on. Um, and the Leyland years were generally fairly bad. Um, but then, of course, they got John Egan in to um, de- denationalise Jaguar, sell Jaguar off from the rest of it, uh, and so on. And that was the sort of background to all of this. Um, so in '83, Jaguar had already got a collection of cars and the, the BL group had got their own collection of cars, which again, they built up for a long time. And um, two trusts were set at the, t- the same time. Well, I think it was actually three trusts. I'll come back to the third one in a minute. So the, uh, the British Motor Industry Heritage Trust, which is the trust that was the BL group um, and, and run the British Motor Museum, they were set up and the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust was set up at the same time obviously to look after the collection that Jaguar uh, had uh, put together. And the third trust, I think, and I may be wrong on this, was the Commercial Vehicle Trust. Mm. Um, So at that point, there there were three separate trusts set up. And the idea was to separate the the history from the companies. Um, And the history, and that includes the cars. And there's a very good reason for that. and it, the way it's set up now, Jaguar do not own the trust. They don't own the cars in the trust. So trust, as you already said in your intro, we're a separate uh, uh, educational tra- charity, educational trust. Um, and we, we own the cars in our collection now, just as the um, BMIHT own the cars in their collection. And some of you may have seen in the press last week, during lockdown, Everybody's struggling economically, and we can all understand why. Well, McLaren are trying to raise money mortgaging their heritage vehicles, and this was announced in the press last week. But Jaguar can't do that because they don't own their heritage vehicles. And one of the whole purposes of putting these things in the trust is you, you protect them in perpetuity from any of the financial vagaries of what's happening in, with companies individually and industry um, global economies and so on. And that was very much part of the rationale of setting up both the uh, Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust and the BMIHT. So where have the cars come from that are now part of the collection? Were they all cars that the factory have gradually gone out and bought or were some donated? Jaguar had already over the years collected quite a few of them. And in fact, we've got Lady Lyons's car from an SS from the mid-1930s, or 1937-38, I think it is. Um, And after she'd finished using it, the company decided to keep that and protect that for for posterity. So even from the very early days, the company did understand the importance of hanging on to some of the history. So they've got a reasonable collection of cars, um, albeit not vast. So all of those cars were donated by the company but then, having established it in in eighty three, during the eighties and nineties, um, the trust then looked at what gaps we'd got in the history and started acquiring a whole bunch of other cars. 
and that's when we acquired the uh, the C type that we've got. We acquired a number of uh, early Daimlers in those days as well. The things like the the D types we've got came the D type came from the factory. The, the XJ13, of course, um, came came from Jaguar and so on. So it's a bit of a mixture. Quite a few from the company, but then over the years. We, more and more to actually plug the gaps that we've got and it's been really crucial to the way jaguar have marketed their cars especially recently but even more in the past they really have used heritage to sell the cars that are currently on the market so what's the relationship between the trust and the manufacturer like now is it something where you supply vehicles to them when they need them or how does the relationship work Technically, the relationship's a bit a bit arm's length. As I say, we, we are financially we are independent, so so we are out onto one side. Although financially independent, the, the company does um, pay us quite a big chunk of money uh, each year anyway. So they do make a, a big contribution to our running costs. But exactly as you've described, yeah, we've got the history, and as you know, yeah, every time you wheel out a new sports car, you're going to wheel out the. E-type, you're going to wheel out the XJS and the XK8s. So exactly as you say, yeah, the company does use a lot of its past and the history to sell the future. Always has done, and I'm sure always will do. Even if you go back to the launch of the V12 E-type, they were already then dragging out XJ13. That was, of course, when Norman Jewis had that famous accident. But that was all about saying this was the past and this is your future, wasn't it? Exactly so. Even though, of course, the V12 engine that was in the 13 was never the same design as the engine that went into production. You know, as with marketing, yeah, never let truth get in the way of a good story. So, yes. (laughs) In recent years, Jaguar have created Jaguar Classic, where they're creating some just stunning, beautiful cars, the D-types that are coming out there, especially Um, anyone who's had the pleasure of having a look around the Jaguar Classic factory will know that there is some beautiful craftsmanship going on in there. So how do you interact with those guys? Again, as with the main company, very closely. In fact, they couldn't have produced those continuation cars the uh, lightweight E-types, the XKSS is the D-types, if we didn't have the archives. So they did all of the research into the archives, going back to the original drawings. Um, I've genuinely lost count of the number of times their technicians have come over and measured measured bits and photographed bits of our long-nosed D-type, uh, which is, uh, although obviously it was, it was raced in period, you know, it is very, very close to its original spec. Owning the Daimler brand as Jaguar has done way back since the 1960s, it gives the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust a unique opportunity to also showcase the earliest beginnings of the motor car as well. And you've got some stunning early Daimlers in the collection. But first of all, just tell us about how that interaction between those two brands works in the modern day. In the modern day, um, mainly there's lots of confusion because the Germans think they own Daimler because, of course, it's, it's now notionally the, the parent name. Daimler AG is the parent name for uh, Mercedes-Benz, of course. Uh, so the Germans certainly don't understand why Jaguar's got anything to do with it. Um, but Jaguar, or William Lyons, uh, he needed a lot more factory space in 1960. The government wouldn't allow him to extend Brown's Lane that was at the time the government were trying to move manufacturing around the country when uh, Hillman imps were made up at Linwood in Scotland. 
and and they wanted they said to Jaguar, no, we're not going to allow you to um, grow Browns Lane. You're going to have to move. He didn't want to do that. Fortunately for him, Daimler was struggling seriously financially, and BSA were looking to offload it. So William Lyons just went and bought the entire company, the brand name, the history, and more importantly for him, the factory, one weekend. And interesting enough, he didn't even tell his board of directors that they heard it on the BBC News on the Monday morning. Um, so basically, Jaguar's involvement with Daimler starts in 1960. So you're right, a lot of the history came along from then, and uh, they made buses and trucks and everything else. Um, but once you go beyond about the 1970s, I'm afraid, with the exception of the uh, Daimler DS420 limousine, Daimler really just became a badge engineered Jaguar, albeit it was always set at the very top end of the product. But the great thing is in the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust, you've got some really early examples of Daimlers as well, haven't you? And at the beginnings of the motor car are showcased with some of those vehicles. Talk us through some of those cars you've got. Our earliest car in our collection is very much that. It built in 1897, and we're fortunate that at some point in its history, the owner, owner bought the number plate 1897 AD, which is the one it sports now. Um, uh, this is so early in the motor industry, about two years after it was made, it went back to the Daimler factory to have one of the, one of the latest newfangled devices fitted called a steering wheel. Because when it left the factory, it had tiller steering. So a bit like the back end of a boat to decide whether you turn right or left. Um, so yeah, it went back and had a, a steering wheel fitted and you can still see the holes in the bodywork where the original t- tiller steering went. Um, the oddest thing about that car is this is before they'd come up with the idea of spark plugs. So to uh, ignite the fuel in the cylinders, you had what's called hot tube ignition. So you literally got a tube going into the cylinder and it gets hot. And the way to heat it is you start a small fire under the bonnet. I want to get that thing fired up and driven around the site. So, um, yeah, most owners now wouldn't be comfortable with the idea of starting a small fire under your car bonnet to get it going. I hear they still do it in places like Russia now and again when it gets really (laughs) cold. But, yeah, not advisable. (laughs) But, of course, in 1897, uh, you would have had a man who would have done that sort of thing for you anyway. He was probably the same man who would have to then walk in front of you with a flag in his hand as well, poor chap. Absolutely right. And, indeed, yeah, in 1897, that was the case. And, of course, uh, the Red Flag Act was uh, repealed in 1904, which, as you know, is where the whole London to Brighton run comes from and we've got um, a number of vehicles in our collection that are eligible for that and again as you said that's from the very early days of the motor industry. We talked about Browns Lane there and of course that is where the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust used to live up until about five years ago when you had that move to Gaydon next to the British Motor Museum and that fantastic facility that we can now see all the cars housed in. How has the move to Gaydon five years ago changed things? I think it took a while to change things because there was a sort of bit of an interregnum but things are now completely different from what they were before. Obviously, the the Browns Lane factory, uh, the museum closed down, so for a while there was no Jaguar-related museum. So so not too long after that, we had an opportunity to build a gallery in the Coventry Transport Museum. So we put quite a big piece of money and we've got 20 cars in a Jaguar gallery in the middle of the uh, 
Transport Museum. And for a while, the view was that was the main Jaguar Museum. But then the opportunity came up to, uh, for the move to Gaydon, which involved building the second building, which is the collection centre. So all of our cars were moved in there about uh, four years ago. We've still got the 20 in the Jaguar Gallery at Coventry Transport Museum, and, and we've got no plans to remove that. That's a very integral part of what we display. But yeah, we've now got a lot more space. We've got the whole ground floor at the collection centre. It has become our, our main museum. While we tend to call it the Jaguar Collection, we, uh, we don't regard or we don't publicise it as a separate museum. It has definitely become our main museum. It's the centre of operations. Of, so the cars are there, all of our staff are there, the workshop, our technicians are there and so on. So um, it's taken a while to get there. But, but yes, it's, it's very much now the centre of the trust. And is the huge collection at Wrighton at Jaguar Classic that you see on those multi-tiered lifts and stuff, is that all part of the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust collection as well? We've got more cars than we've got space. Yeah. Um, so certainly we've got some of our cars there. We've got about 35 cars on, on those ramps in Wrighton. But that's really just, for us, that's a storage facility. And we do rotate those cars. If we take cars out to events, we'll take cars off the racks to plug the gaps in our display. But bulk of the cars in Wrighton had nothing to do with us, and they belong to Jaguar Classic. And most people will be familiar with what's called the Hull Collection, a collection of cars that was put together by a dentist called Dr. Hull. Um, and I think five years ago, maybe six years ago now, I can't remember exactly when, JLR bought that Hull Collection. Um, it was about 600 cars, uh, and about 200 of them were Jaguars and Daimlers. And it's not just cars either, is it? You've got some really interesting exhibits. And, uh, of course, very recently we had VE Day, and very interesting to look at uh, the story of how SS became Jaguar through those years and how they were involved in the war effort. And what they were making during the war is quite fascinating. And you've got some of the examples of what the company were building during the war including a trailer that was seen all over the especially uh, the middle east where they were fighting out in the gulf and other places wasn't it yeah that's right i mean basically virtually all manufacturers were turned over to, to the war effort um so ss or, or swallow sidecar started off making sidecars well actually the military had a huge demand for sidecars for dispatch riders and taking people around uh, and during the war they built 10,000 sidecars for the military but then back to the trailer that you're talking about it's um it's a half ton capacity lightweight trailer that can be towed behind anything most probably a jeep in second world war can be dropped from an airplane on a parachute and will survive the landing and although we've only got one of those in our collection they made 30,000 of those trailers, but they made wings for bombers. They made uh, bomb bay doors for bombers. They did lots of repair work on, on planes, all sorts of things. So, and actually long-term that was good for the company because they learned lots of new manufacturing techniques, lots of use of aluminium for the aircraft, which they hadn't used a vast amount before. Um, they got quite a lot of plant and machinery in that they needed to use uh, because some of their equipment was re you know, really dated back to the 30s. 
Well, if you are interested in the story of uh, Jaguar and SS during the Second World War, you can actually read the story of what they were up to and what they were producing during the Second World War on our website at jc.org.uk. And there are some pictures of the trailer from the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust in there as well. Because most people aren't aware. Um, the government knew the war was coming in the mid-30s and they started building shadow factories in the second half of the 30s. And of course, that's where Brown's Lane came from. That was originally the shadow factory for the, uh, for the main Daimler factory in Radford. Within the collection, Tony, there's quite a number of vehicles that have been donated, isn't there? And there's some quite high-profile donations, including a very special E-type that you've got in the collection. Over the years, we have had a number of donations. I must admit, sadly, that seems to have sort of stopped nowadays. And I think that's basically because um, the value of the cars have, have gone up. So whereas in the past, where often when someone died, a car would be donated. I think sadly now, you know, dad or granddad dies and the, the kids open the garage doors and instead of seeing a historically significant car, they see a large chunk of money. Um, so I, th I think donations have probably dried up now. Um, but the historic E-Type that you're talking about is actually uh, 77RW, uh, which, of course, is the first E-Type uh, Roadster. Um, now, that hasn't quite actually been donated to us yet. It's still owned by a man called Mr. Kogan, Mike Kilgannon, and it's on permanent loan to us. And, and he, he bought it when it wasn't very old, only, but he knew what it was. Um, but it fell into terrible, terrible disrepair. It was a wreck. And I remember seeing it at Jaguar events over 30 years ago. And I think if you'd have pushed your finger hard on the bonnet, you'd have gone straight through it. Um, but he loaned it to us and, and we actually completely restored it. So it's in the condition it's in now, thanks to the effort that we've done. Uh, and, and that's part of the lo loan agreement. So, so he's loaned it to us. He normally gets it back for use for a number of weekends in the summer. We've also got the last E-Type in the connection, collection, but that, of course, was donated by the company. So that's the last Series 3, and the company um, kept that. They used it for PR and lo lots of press, lots of events, and then eventually when its PR life was finished, that came across to us. So, yes, we are fortunate that we've got the first Roadster and the uh, last roadster E-Type in our collection. And they did the same with the last XJ off the line as well, didn't they? That came to you. That's right. And in fact, you, you asked about the relationship between us and JLR. And we do have, there is a policy in place where the company is meant to give us what we call the first and the last. So, so the first production car and the last production car. Now, that doesn't mean every time they do a model change, you know, they've recently refreshed the F-Type we're not going to get the first of every refresh and we would never ever have any space to to store them but yes because of that first and the last policy we've got the um last two xjs xjs's off the line we've got the last uh, xk8 um off the line we've got most of the last series of the xj's um and in fact one of our, our most recent acquisition last year was uh, in July of last year we got the last right-hand drive XJ to be built at Castle Bromwich. Now that is very significant because of course Jaguar have announced that the next versions of the XJ are going to be all electric 
So we have got the last right-hand drive internal combustion engine powered XJ saloon car that the factory has built. Very, very significant and an important milestone in the next phase of development of Jaguar, of course, as well. And um, I mean, there are some fun stuff in there as well. I'm sure the kids all love when they come to see them at the museum, the Bond cars. Uh, they've got the vehicle from Austin Powers there. And uh, you're not short of film cars, are you, amongst the collection? Yeah, the kids love the Bond cars. The kids also love the Formula One cars because mo- mm. most kids never, ever get anywhere near a genuine race car. So the Formula One cars and our other race cars, the Le Mans winning XJR9 and so on. So, so they get huge amounts of attention. Um, but it's not just kids who like the Bond car and the uh, Austin Powers Union Jack. The last time those two cars went out was December of last year. They went to the local army base, which is the um, ammunition dump at Kyneton, right? And they went as a backdrop for their... I don't know, Christmas dinner or, or winter ball or whatever they call it. So there are lots of photographs about of um, uh, army personnel in full dress uniforms standing next to uh, a Jaguar with a machine gun on the top. And you highlight an important point there, that these cars get out a lot, don't they? And they're out and, and being seen by the public and educating people and um, just being enjoyed by wider audiences. And that's important to the trust, isn't it? It is. And again, in your intro, you started off by saying we were an educational trust. And believe it or not, we believe that us taking cars out to show to people and, and to talk to people... That is part of our educational agreement. Education isn't just about children or college students or apprentices. Part of it is about the history and telling the story. And, and yes, that's why we're always keen to support the JEC and the other clubs and, and, and take our cars to events because that is very much part of us uh, telling the story. Uh, it also has the added benefit that wherever possible, as long as the distances are too great, when we take cars to an event, as long as they're events, as long as they're road legal, we will drive them there, and, and that's one of the things that we do. You know, we want to keep the, as many of the cars running and working as we can. That's important, isn't it? Cars only mean stuff to people when they can see them and hear them and smell them, and that's all part of the experience of a historic vehicle. And the the, the older the vehicle, the more important those other senses are to understand exactly why it's important and why it's interesting. So, uh, yeah, it's great to hear that. My chat with Tony Merigold from the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust will continue in next week's episode when we discuss the challenges of keeping the car collection maintained and on the road and explore some of his personal favourites amongst those highly significant cars. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to get in touch and send us your questions via jecpodcast.com. Use the voice recorder on there preferably, or of course, you can use the contact form as well. You can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club really easily online at jecpodcast.com. Just click the Join Us button to ensure that you get the latest copy of Jaguar Enthusiast magazine and access to literally hundreds of pounds worth of member discounts and benefits. Till our next podcast, see ya. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.